Any views or opinions expressed on KUR are not necessarily those of Kutztown University, Kutztown University Student Government, Kutztown University Student Services Incorporated, KUR staff and management or other affiliated organizations. This week on KUR True Crime, we're sharing the story of America's most infamous criminal duo, a couple whose two-year spree made them household names. can tell you people they were the devil's children Bonnie and Clyde began their evil doing one lazy afternoon down Savannah way Born in Ellis County, Texas, on March 24, 1909, Clyde Barrow was the fifth of seven children. There's some debate over whether he was actually born in 1909 or if it was a year later, in 1910, as it's been noted in family records. His family lived in awful poverty. His parents, who were tenant farmers, weren't able to make enough money to pay off their debts. They were one of the families who, around the time Clyde turned 12, moved into a squatter's camp along the Trinity River in Dallas. It seemed when Clyde was young that he might pursue music as a career. He loved to sing and play guitar, and he taught himself how to play saxophone. Eventually, the family moved into a home in West Dallas after his father opened a gas station. Clyde grew up in a rough neighborhood, but this didn't seem to be a problem. He attended Sydney Lanier Elementary School before dropping out. His older brother Marvin, more commonly known as Buck, would often take him along to cause disturbances in town. The two were almost always in trouble with the law. Clyde was skinny and stood at only 5'7", but his level of disobedience greatly outweighed his physical size. Once, when the brothers stole a car and drove it around town, they finally stopped at a shop, went inside, and robbed the place. Getting in, getting the money, and getting out proved to be easy. But when a police officer saw them leaving, he chased after them. The brothers split as Clyde escaped into the woods. 
Meanwhile, his brother was caught and arrested. While in custody, Buck would refuse to name any accomplices, and the police had no choice but to take him alone and book him for robbery. He was sentenced to time in the Huntsville State Prison. Surprisingly, Buck's arrest and his near capture didn't stop Clyde from robbing another store the next night. Clyde's first arrest was for failing to return a rental car. He would continue to crack safes, rob stores, and steal cars. Born on October 1st, 1910, in Rowena, Texas, Bonnie Parker was the second of three children. Bonnie's father died when she was four years old, and the rest of the family moved to Cement City, Texas, to live with her mother's family. Cement City was a poor industrial section of suburb that later became part of Dallas. Bonnie went to Eagle Ford School and Cement City High School. She was described as highly intelligent and she found interests in acting and writing poetry. She loved performing in school pageants and talent shows where she would sing Broadway hits or her favorite country songs. She claimed that she would one day see her name in lights. Bonnie was conventionally beautiful and stood at only 4'11", weighing only 90 pounds. By the time she was 16, Bonnie was married to her high school sweetheart, Roy Thornton. She had dropped out of school around the time of their marriage. Neither of them were happy in this marriage, however, and Roy started spending more time out of the house. Shortly after they married, he was arrested for robbery and received five years in prison. The two would never cross paths again even though they never filed for an official divorce. Bonnie moved back in with her grandparents and got a job as a waitress in 1929, right at the beginning of the Great Depression. The cafe she worked at was just down the road from where Clyde was working at the same time the united mirror and glass. Even though they existed in such close proximity to each other, they never happened to cross paths. One night in 1930, Clyde returned home to see his sister. Bonnie, a friend of his sister, was at the house. The two met and spent the night talking, supposedly falling in love at first sight. 
Bonnie was 19 years old and Clyde was 21. Police had started compiling information against Clyde around Christmas of the previous year. They arrested him in February, shortly after he and Bonnie had met. He had told Bonnie that the police were after him and he needed to leave town. While he was packing, police showed up at the door. While he was awaiting trial, Bonnie took a bus to visit him in jail. She met his cellmate, Frank Turner, who claimed he could break them out if they had a gun. Asking Bonnie to help, he told her to go to his parents' house, drew a detailed diagram of the house, and circled where she could find a gun he had hidden. The next day, Bonnie returned with the gun, snuck it in, and handed it to Clyde under the table. That night, Frank and Clyde broke out of jail. They escaped to Illinois, where they stole cars and robbed stores. Their tactic of frequently switching license plates helped them remain undetected. Eventually, another person who passed them on a road memorized their current license plate number and reported it. Both men were captured and returned to the Texas jail. The court sentenced Clyde to 14 years of hard labor. He was sent to the Eastham Prison Farm in Lovelady, Texas, a prison known for its awful conditions. Prisoners regularly received harsh punishments. One of the people inflicting these punishments was the building tender, another convict who helped keep up the prison and ensured peace amongst inmates and was therefore given more permission and leverage. This position was held by a man named Ed Crowder, who used his power to repeatedly assault Clyde. Eventually, Clyde snapped and murdered Crowder. Another inmate, Aubrey Scally, who was already sentenced to life, took the blame for the murder. Clyde would never receive any consequences. While behind bars, one of the few bits of happiness Clyde received was mail. Only family or spouses were allowed to send mail to prisoners so he lied and said that Bonnie was his legal wife. The two exchanged letters regularly. Still, 
Life was miserable, and Clyde was desperate to get out. The physical labor throughout all hours of every day was taking a toll on him. He decided that he was willing to do whatever it took to leave Eastham. Assuming that being physically incapacitated would lead to a transfer, he asked another inmate to chop off his toes. The inmate accepted the request and pretended that his chopping of two of Clyde's toes was an accident. Little did Clyde know, his mother had been petitioning in his favor. She managed to convince a judge in his case to give him parole in two years if he behaved well. Clyde was released shortly after, in February of 1932. Bonnie and Clyde continued seeing each other. Their love grew, but with the Great Depression ever-present, jobs were scarce. Clyde worked for a time at a glass and mirror company in an attempt to become an upstanding citizen. However, his criminal record made him a choice target of random police roundups and questioning, which gave the business he worked for a bad image. He was fired, and he returned to a life of crime. Together, Bonnie and Clyde formed the Barrow Gang. They recruited Clyde's brother Buck and his wife Blanche, as well as his childhood friend Raymond Hamilton and two other men, W.D. Jones and Henry Methvin. Buck had been pardoned by the governor and was released from the Texas State Prison. The group's crime spree began in March of 1932, before Buck was released, when they broke into and robbed the Sims Oil Refinery in Dallas. Once Buck was pardoned, he brought Blanche along to create the official team. The Barrow Gang was ever-evolving. It operated with different combinations of the members at different times. In April of 1932, the Barrow Gang organized a bank heist at the First National Bank in Lawrence, Kansas. This ignited a fire under the group. They went on to rob places across Texas in towns like Cedar Hill, Lancaster, Ponder, Salina, Lufkin, Grand Prairie, and Hillsboro. The group stole $400, the equivalent of over $6,000 today, from a packing company in Dallas. 
this spree continued throughout the remainder of the year and spread into Missouri, Kansas, and Indiana. Continuing into 1933, they killed multiple police officers, including one in Dallas. They would later kill two highway patrolmen and even killed Mayor Joseph Krausen of Huntsville. Part of the group robbed a hardware store, an ambitious plan, partly because the store sat directly across the street from a courthouse. Bonnie was practically shaking with excitement for her first real robbery. When the store's alarm went off, however, Clyde sent her out of the store and ordered her to catch a ride back to Dallas. Clyde and Ray Hamilton moved on to a nearby grocery store after determining that the amount they had already stolen wasn't enough. They held up the store at gunpoint and forced the owner to open the safe. In the middle of the chaos, a gun was fired, although it's unspecified whose gun it was, and the store owner was killed. Clyde and Hamilton took the money and ran. This robbery, with the added murder, was much worse than any of their previous crimes. Bonnie wasn't involved in the store robbery or murder. Still, the police took her into custody when they found her. She was put in jail in Kaufman, Texas. Soon after, she was released due to lack of evidence. The wife of the grocery store owner was able to identify Clyde and Ray Hamilton to police. When Clyde found out that he was a wanted man, he accepted the fact that he would need to run from the law for the rest of his life. He immediately went to find Bonnie, who was still disappointed that she couldn't fully participate in the latest crime. Clyde asked if she wanted to come with him on the road. He offered her the option, since he didn't want her to be tied to him and implicated in his crimes. Clyde had vowed that he would never return to prison. He would do anything to remain free. This, more than likely, meant death for him and anyone with him. But Bonnie didn't hesitate. She was going with him. She was going to stay with him until the end. After packing a bag and leaving a brief note for her mother, she set off to accompany Clyde on the run.
Programming on KUR provided in part by the students of Kutztown University Radio. Checking campus headlines, Kutztown University alumni Mackenzie Brown of the class of 2019 competed in January at her first USA Olympic trials for long track speed skating. Brown has been skating on ice for only three seasons, but has an extensive and successful history with competitive inline speed skating. A Coopersburg, Pennsylvania native, Brown now lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. She competed in the 500-meter and 1,000-meter events during the week of January 3rd. The trials were held in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where Brown placed 6th in the 500-meter and 8th in the 1,000-meter. Qualifying for the Olympic team is not an easy feat. For each of the women's events, there are two spots available. Individuals must place in the top two to be selected for the team. Those spots are decided over the course of the season through the World Cups based on how USA performed at the combined four events. Brown's goal is to make the 2026 Olympic team. That's awesome, and we wish her the best. We check news hourly on KUR. Throughout the Barrow Gang's adventures, they had gained $1,900, the equivalent of $39,000 in today's money. Bonnie and Clyde continued their participation in regular robberies with the group while on the run. Both Bonnie's association with Clyde and her involvement in various crimes placed the same wanted tag on her as her partner. Despite her public image as a dangerous criminal, Bonnie rarely even handled weapons. There's no evidence that she ever shot anyone other than the one time she allegedly shot herself in the foot. While passing through Springfield, Oklahoma, the group came across a community dance and decided to join in. They assumed that police wouldn't be on guard at such a relaxed event. Because prohibition was still in effect, this assumption was incorrect. Two police officers noticed that Clyde and Ray Hamilton were allegedly intoxicated, and they attempted to question the pair. The men immediately became agitated, pulled out their guns, and started shooting. Both officers were hit, and the event descended into chaos. Everett Milligan, another one of Clyde's accomplices, was caught and arrested by police in the midst of the confusion. While the rest of the group managed to escape, Milligan openly admitted the names of his friends. When Clyde heard that his name was now associated with the murders, he decided to abandon Oklahoma. Bonnie suggested they go to her aunt's farm in New Mexico to get as far away as possible and fly under the radar for a while. Between Oklahoma and New Mexico, a police officer noticed the car's license plate. Out-of-state license plates weren't common. In the middle of the Great Depression, few people had the money to travel. 
so the officer looked up the plate number and found that the car had been stolen days before. He followed the car all the way to the destination, waited for the couple to go inside, and looked around the property. He decided to approach the home, but when he knocked on the door, Clyde, who had seen the officer coming, answered with a gun. He and Bonnie forced the officer into their car and drove away. Bonnie's aunt noticed the altercation and called the police, who assumed that the officer had been killed when hearing that he had been kidnapped. When he returned, though, he told them that his abductors proudly stated their names were Bonnie and Clyde before letting him go without harming him. This was the event that earned the couple their reputation and place in national headlines. Bonnie and Clyde repeatedly stole new cars, switching vehicles, and often changing the license plates. Clyde would shoot anyone in his way, but would often leave witnesses who could later identify him to police. All of their crimes took place near a state border so they could quickly escape police by slipping into the next state over. The Barrow Gang entered a bank in Missouri, but a security guard immediately realized that they were planning a robbery. When the guard started shooting, the gang had to dodge the bullets only making out with $80. At their next bank robbery, they entered with guns blazing, but then found out that the bank had no money for them to steal. Bonnie and Clyde decided to return home briefly to see their families for Christmas. Ray Hamilton had been caught by police, so Clyde needed a new right-hand man. His pick was W.D. Jones, who was younger than Clyde and ended up being a big disappointment. The first job Clyde gave W.D. was to steal a car. He bragged that he had stolen countless cars and the fact that Clyde told him to do it during the day made no difference. But when they approached the car and W.D. jumped out to steal it, he couldn't manage to start the engine. It took so long that neighbors came out of their houses to see what the noise was. The car's owner also heard and came out to chase them away but Clyde had already jumped out and started it himself. The owner tried to pull him out of the car, but was shot and pushed to the side, then left there when Clyde sped away in the stolen car and Bonnie followed in the other. With their crimes piling up, 
Bonnie and Clyde knew they wouldn't be able to go home for a long time. Police were doubling their efforts to catch the couple. But they were being protected by people who understood and even agreed with what they were doing. Many had lost everything to the Great Depression. Bonnie and Clyde were just an example of people who were willing to fight back against the government that didn't seem willing to do anything about the economic crisis. Across the country, the couple became media sensations. Clyde was painted as a gangster and Bonnie his love-struck partner in crime. Pictures of the two were published for millions to see. Newspapers described them in provocative ways, referring to Clyde as a notorious Texas bad man and murderer, and Bonnie as his cigar-smoking, quick-shooting woman accomplice. To be fair, it was the middle of the Depression. Newspapers were also trying to stay afloat financially, and that meant they needed to sell copies. They wrote stories about things readers were interested in. Stars like Babe Ruth and Bette Davis, and gangsters like John Dillinger. But nothing was more engaging than glamorized tales of lovers on the run. With growing pressure being placed on police to capture the Barrow Gang, they cornered them. The group was forced to shoot their way out, killing another policeman, adding a fifth onto their list of murders. A Missouri police officer decided to stop them. They responded by forcing him into the car at gunpoint and driving away. After a while, when the battery died, they took him into a store where they forced him to buy a new battery, then forced him to install it before leaving him on the side of the road. Clyde's brother Buck had been arrested and was in prison for a period of time. But in March of 1933, he was released and brought his wife Blanche to reunite with the gang. They all rented an apartment in Joplin, Missouri, hoping to lay low for a few months. But when neighbors reported them for suspicious behavior, and the cars in the driveway came up as stolen vehicles. Police rushed to catch them. Officers went to the apartment on April 13th. Clyde heard them coming, and W.D. started shooting, wounding one policeman and killing another. Blanche, panicking in the midst of the chaos, ran out the back door while everyone else got into a car in the garage. Clyde smashed right through the garage door and through the police blockade 
they slowed down enough to pick up Blanche, who was running down the street, before speeding away. Before this, the police didn't know who Buck and Blanche were. The second couple was still a mystery when they investigated the apartment. But when they found Blanche's purse and Buck's parole papers, they had new names to add to their list. Along with identification for their new suspects, police found rolls of film containing multiple pictures of Bonnie and Clyde. These images were published in newspapers, increasing the couple's fame. Many have theorized that Bonnie purposely left these photos in hopes that they would be published. In most of the pictures, the two were posed very purposely. Knowing that Bonnie had dreams growing up of becoming a movie star makes this theory easier to believe. The gang was worried that the police were catching up to them, so they switched cars and changed license plates regularly. At one point, they were caught by the owner of a car they were stealing. The owner borrowed a neighbor's car to chase after them, but when he finally caught up with the car where it had stopped, only W.D. Jones was inside. The rest of the gang arrived in a second car, almost like an ambush, and forced the person into their car. For the rest of the night, they drove around with the person trapped in the back seat. They were dropped off on the side of a road unharmed the following morning. The gang was kind enough to leave them with some money, but they kept the car. After dropping the car's owner off, they sped away down the highway, unaware that part of the road was out due to construction. They braked at the last second, having to steer into a ditch alongside the road. Everyone escaped without injuries, except for Bonnie, who was pinned underneath the car. The others had to pull her out of the now-burning car, and one of her legs was badly burnt. The gang stole another car and continued on after patching Bonnie up. Because of this injury, Bonnie would never again be able to walk or stand without some support. She began using morphine for the pain and when she left medical supplies behind and police found them, rumors spread that she was a drug addict. On July 18, 1933, the Barrow Gang arrived at a tourist camp in Missouri. They got keys to two cabins. When the worker saw them helping Bonnie inside and carrying guns with them, he alerted the police. 
officers surrounded both cabins and banged on the door of one. Clyde immediately started shooting, and Buck was shot twice in the midst of the gunfire. One bullet hit Blanche in the arm as they helped Bonnie into a car in the garage. Buck was put in the back seat. WD shot out the door at an armored car blocking their way until it was forced to move. Clyde drove through the garage door, surprising the police so much that they forgot to shoot, allowing the car to drive through. They finally started firing once the car got past and WD was hit once. The windows of the car shattered and glass blinded Blanche when it hit her in the eyes. Police located the gang again and surrounded them. Their gunfire made Clyde crash into a tree. He and Bonnie jumped out of the car and ran away through the forest. When Buck and Blanche attempted to do the same thing, they were instead forced to lay down alongside the car to hide from the bullets. Police captured them, though Buck would die only days later from his gunshot wounds. Blanche was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Bonnie and Clyde managed to leave the area and hide in different locations for over two months. W.D. Jones was still on the loose as well, but he had had enough of crime with Bonnie and Clyde. When he gave himself up to police, he accused Clyde of forcing him into a life of crime. He agreed to help police track down the infamous couple. Investigators assume that Bonnie and Clyde may want to return home at some point, especially if there was an upcoming holiday or special event for the family. Bonnie was very close with her mother and insisted on seeing her every few months. Clyde often visited his mother and sister. Police found that Clyde's mother had a birthday coming up, and when they confirmed that Bonnie and Clyde were moving in the direction of the Barrow home, they moved in on the meeting location. They hid until the targets were out of the car, then ordered them to surrender. But the two ran back to the car. Both of them were shot in the leg, but they still made it to the car and escaped. Programming on KUR provided in part by the students of Kutztown University Radio. From the KUR News Desk, I'm Mike Greggs. Dr. Thomas Hanford has been hired to serve as Kutztown University's new registrar. Hanford brings more than a decade of registrar experience to KU and will begin his appointment on Monday, July 18th. 
Hanford has substantial history in higher education, administration, employment, and has had a great deal of experience as an instructor. Spending more than 10 years at the Registrar's Office of Student Registration and Record Services in SUNY Cortland, serving as Associate Registrar, Registrar and Executive Director, he helped to redefine the office to be a more student-centric environment with a specific unit focused on student outreach, degree completion, and student mobility. As KU's Registrar, Hanford will serve as the university's Chief Student Records Official and will strategically manage registration for undergraduate and graduate students. Welcome, Dr. Hanford. In other news, Kutztown University awarded Richard Wells an honorary doctorate at the institution's 2022 spring commencement on Saturday, May 14th. Wells received a Doctor of Humane Letters. The degree was presented by University President Dr. Kenneth S. Hawkinson. And Kutztown University's Rock Ensemble One received the two 2022 Downbeat Student Music Awards and a singer in the ensemble, DeLacy Laura, has been named Best Singer in the Pop, Rock, and Blues category. These are the 7th, 8th, and 9th Downbeat Awards for the program, the first time the KU Ensemble has won three awards in a single year and was also named the winner in each category. We check news hourly on KUR. Their next mission was to break Ray Hamilton out of prison. Clyde finally got a chance for revenge on the Eastham prison farm that had treated him so horribly. On January 16, 1934, they freed Hamilton and his friend from prison, Henry Methvin. Someone killed a guard dog during the escape although it's never been confirmed who it was. But this made police more angry and pushed them to hire former Texas Ranger Frank Hamer to lead the manhunt. Bonnie and Clyde, with Ray Hamilton and Henry Methvin, continued with more robberies and killings of police officers. When Hamilton began complaining that he wasn't getting a big enough share of the money, the others decided to separate from him. One night, Methvin was keeping watch while Bonnie and Clyde slept. He woke them up for two police officers who were approaching on motorcycles. Clyde wanted to escape during a car chase, but when Methvin shot one of the officers, Clyde had no choice but to shoot the other. At this time, the FBI only had jurisdiction over the charge of stealing vehicles. Still, they worked tirelessly to track the couple. They published wanted notices and distributed fingerprints, photographs, descriptions, and criminal records of the two fugitives, as well as other information, to all police. Multiple warrants were issued for their arrest. One man who allegedly witnessed one of their murders claimed that Bonnie laughed as the victim died. This may have been exaggerated. Still, it changed the public's perception. 
Before then, Bonnie had only been seen as Clyde's source of company on the road. $1,000 was offered to anyone who could provide Bonnie and Clyde's bodies to police. Their spree continued. On May 6th, they managed to meet with Bonnie's mother. Bonnie gave her a poem she had written called The Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde. Police noticed that they were sneaking in regular visits with family. When they learned of the connection with Henry Methvin and the Methvin family who lived in Louisiana, they were excited to find that Bonnie and Clyde had been seen driving a stolen car from New Orleans. Early in 1934, police found out Bonnie's sister, Billy Mace, was working at a cafe in Gladewater, Texas, and they went to question her. When she figured out that they were police, she, as well as other patrons in the cafe, didn't take kindly. Shots were fired, nobody was injured. Still, the incident was crazy enough that the officers assumed Bonnie and Clyde would hear about it. Meanwhile, Bonnie and Clyde were in Wood County and were expecting to meet with one of Clyde's friends, J.A. Nichols. The problem was, Nichols was sitting in a jail cell. Nichols was a well-known car thief and had just delivered guns and ammunition to Bonnie and Clyde a few days before. Clyde promised him $100 for the job, but then told him he would pay him a few days later if Nichols came back to meet them again. Angry that he hadn't been paid as promised, Nichols told police where they were planning to be. Officers went to the meeting location to wait, but the couple never showed up. They had apparently heard that Nichols was arrested and ran away to Louisiana. In April of 1934, investigators in Louisiana learned that Bonnie and Clyde had been seen in an area around the Methvin home. Not only this, but they had been visiting the Methvin family. They had found out that all of them were planning a party at a lake nearby on May 21st and would be back in the area a day or two later. On May 23rd, Frank Hamer led a team of police to the side of Louisiana State Highway 154 where they hid in the grass and waited. Early in the morning, 
after stopping to get breakfast from a cafe. The couple came driving down the highway in their stolen car. Little did they know, Henry Methvin was assisting police. He told them where Bonnie and Clyde would be and when, and his father was recruited to help as well. Methvin's father waited alongside the road, and when the couple saw him and slowed down to greet him, the officers lying in wait opened fire. What followed was a storm of bullets directed at the car. Every window was shattered, and the body of the car was punctured with over a hundred bullet holes. Bonnie and Clyde's run came to a quick and brutal end. The pair had killed around 13 people and injured more during their two-year spree. It seemed like the couple was ready to defend themselves like they had so many times before. Multiple weapons were found in the car, including the gun on Bonnie's lap, along with 3,000 rounds of ammunition. Gruesome images of their death were published in newspapers nationwide. It was an end worthy of two dramatic gangsters. Bonnie had been shot 26 times, while Clyde had been shot 17 times. Bonnie was 23 years old. Clyde was 24. The death scene fell into chaos. Looters attempted to take souvenirs, including pieces of clothing or body parts. A massive crowd was surrounding the bodies by the time police returned to take the corpses. The bodies were taken to Dallas and displayed for the public to see. Large crowds gathered in hopes of seeing, and even touching, the bodies of two infamous outlaws. Some critics complained that the police didn't give a warning before opening fire. The officers responded by saying that they didn't want the two to have a chance to escape again or to fire back. Bonnie had previously said she wanted to be buried next to Clyde. Her family denied this request. She was buried at the Fish Trap Cemetery in Dallas, but her grave was later moved to the Crown Hill Memorial Park. It remains there today. Nonetheless, Bonnie's niece and Clyde's nephew are still fighting for a court order that would have Bonnie's body exhumed and moved next to Clyde's.
Today, Bonnie and Clyde are remembered as icons. Artifacts from their lives are kept in various museums, such as the Texas Prison Museum and Texas Ranger Hall of Fame, the Crime Museum, and even the Henry Ford Museum. Sites where their robberies or murders took place, as well as the spot of their death, are marked with signs so those passing by can stop to stand in the same spot that the two infamous criminals once were. Even the bullet-ridden car that they met their end in, now labeled the death car, has become a piece of history. The car was given back to its original owner following a dispute over where it truly belonged. The owner then began renting out the car to a carnival owner, who later bought the vehicle and toured the country to show it off. In 1988, the car sold to a resort company for $250,000. Most recently, the car was part of a special FBI exhibit at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Museum in California. Movies and shows have been made to retell the story of the famous couple including the 1967 film, Bonnie and Clyde. The most recent portrayal comes from the Netflix movie, The Highwaymen, which tells the story of two Texas Rangers who hunted down Bonnie and Clyde. After all these years, there's something oddly fascinating about the story that continues to draw in viewers. The legacy of Bonnie and Clyde is a romantic one, that of two lovers running from the law, of Clyde's driving skills, of Bonnie's poetry and beauty, one that breaks the stereotype of a romantic couple in fancy clothes living a glamorous life while outrunning the police. Bonnie and Clyde's story is one of sometimes incompetent and careless criminals who lived an uneasy life, who often botched robberies and narrowly escaped police. Bonnie and Clyde were a product of the Great Depression and have gone down in history as both rebels against an economic system that failed them and lovers who were dedicated to each other until the end. KUR True Crime is a student-produced show that researches multiple sources and is a production of Kutztown University Radio. Any theories presented are only theories and have not been proven as 100% factual. You can follow KUR True Crime on both Facebook and Instagram 
and you can find all of our previous episodes on Spotify by searching Kutztown University Radio. You can also follow Kutztown University Radio on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Join us next time for another installment of KUR True Crime.